This is unbelievable to me that they would arrest a 90-year-old cardinal in Hong Kong who is one of the most known figures throughout Hong Kong and the world on Chinese oppression. And they boldly and with great gall just arrest him. I mean, this to me really harkens back to the early Nazi moves against the Jews. The lesson we take as Indians is even though we face persecution, even though we may face martyrdom, even though we may face tremendous constraints, restrictions, the church will grow because that is the beauty of the faith. Ambassador Sam Brownback and Rebecca Shaw are champions of religious freedom across the globe and are experts on this final episode of Religious Freedom Matters. I'm your host, Andrea Pachati Bayer, director of The Conscience Project. You'll hear from our experts shortly, but first, I'm pleased to introduce my co-host, friend, and another tireless advocate for the persecuted, founder of Nazarene.org, Father Benedict Keeley. Thanks for joining me, Father. Thank you so much for having me again, Andrea. I'm looking forward to this episode. It's going to be very exciting with Ambassador Brownback. Well, I couldn't agree more, Father. This season, we've been looking at international religious freedom matters and how the United States and the Church are responding. Now, folks, if you haven't listened to our prior episodes already, I strongly encourage you to do so. You can find them on the website of the National Catholic Register or search for Religious Freedom Matters on your favorite podcast platform. To wrap up our series today, we're going to take a look at religious freedom advocacy. What's America's commitment to advancing the cause of religious freedom across the globe? What role should the Catholic Church play? And what are we as Catholics called to do to stand up for religious freedom? Joining us first in this important conversation is Ambassador Sam Brownback, who served as Ambassador-at-Large for International Religious Freedom from February 2018 to January 2021. Prior to this important role, he was a longtime public servant as governor of Kansas and in the United States Senate and House of Representatives. And during his tenure in the Senate, Sam Brownback worked actively on issues of religious freedom across the world and was a key sponsor of the International Religious Freedom Act of 1998. Today, he's chairman and founder of the National Committee for Religious Freedom, an organization committed to protecting religious liberty here at home, as well as co-chair for the International Religious Freedom Summit. Ambassador Brownback is also a veteran guest here at Religious Freedom Matters. Welcome back, Ambassador Brownback. Hey, it's great to join you again. Always good to be on your show. Thank you so much. Ambassador, wonderful to meet you also for the first time. I'm concerned, and I'm sure you're very concerned, with the recent arrest of Cardinal Zen. In fact, I know you're concerned because I saw your words about sanctions against leading Chinese politicians. But also, we know the terrible situation in Nigeria, which doesn't seem to be getting any coverage in the mainstream media. But in terms of Cardinal Zen in particular, as a Catholic priest, I'm very nervous, perhaps bewildered by the Vatican's attitude towards China, its apparent silence, even just the word concern about the arrest of Cardinal Zen. Uh, what's your sense of, uh, of why the Vatican seems to be so silent about this, this issue? Yeah, I, I've met with Vatican officials on this from Cardinal Paroline, Archbishop Gallagher, uh, on this specific topic of the Vatican's relationship with China and the selection of bishops in particular. 
And I, I've just strongly advocated against them entering into any agreement with the Chinese Communist Party on multiple grounds. Uh, one, the validation of China that it gives and, and other grounds. And um, I think, honestly, what's going on right now is that the Vatican is just so vested in this agreement that they went into in spite of many people's objections and prior papal objections to doing this, that they don't want to harm the agreement. Because this is unbelievable to me that they would arrest a 90-year-old cardinal in Hong Kong, who is one of the most known figures throughout Hong Kong and the world on Chinese uh, oppression. And they boldly and with great gall just arrest him. I mean, this to me really harkens back to the early Nazi moves against the Jews. I, I am deeply concerned about this. Now, I hope that thought in me is overblown and that's not what's happening. But th this is so in your face galling what the Chinese have done. And it is so deafening the silence out of the Vatican. I'm, I'm just really concerned about this terrible mixture here. Well, Ambassador, it's um, we spoke earlier in our series on one episode with Nina Shea of the Hudson Institute, and she made clear that this is not an isolated instance of the oppression of Christians in both mainland China and in Hong Kong, that this is a pattern of behavior that's been going on for quite a while, for the last few years in particular, this notion of sinitization. And um, it's very disconcerting. I also, I'd like to tap into your knowledge, both as an American statesman and politician. I haven't heard that much from leading officials here in the U.S. denouncing the arrest of cardinals and, and the atrocities happening in China. And I'd like to first get your take on what our legal commitments are to international religious freedom and whether the case of China and these more other recent atrocities in our silence indicates our lack of commitment to those obligations. Well, we're heavily committed to it. Uh, I mean, we've got the International Religious Freedom Act. That's a statute of 20 years standing now. It's been uh, reapplied multiple times or passed multiple times. New editions of it have been put forward by different administrations, Republican and Democrat. There is more passion for this topic on the Republican side of the aisle than on the Democrat side of the aisle. Uh, we see it as a foundational human right, indeed a cornerstone human right, that if you really practice religious freedom, you can build off of that freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, many other human rights. And that's why we believe that this human right in particular has been so thwarted and held down by so many governments, particularly communist governments around the world, because, because religion, uh, the church, is the one institution that governments can't take down. They try, they continue to try to thwart it, but they can't do it. And so it's one of those foundational institutions that can stand up to government and governments don't like that. So I, I think really what you're seeing is the U.S. is committed to this. I think we still are finding our voice 
on how all to criticize China. And I think Russia, honestly, is taking a lot of the oxygen out of the air right now. It's it's just everybody was so amazed that the Russians would launch a land war in modern Europe against a sovereign nation that, you know, and the focus is really there, but people really are still watching China out of the corner of their eyes and, and very concerned about its trajectory. Mr. Ambassador, I've heard, I've been visiting Iraq uh, since 2015 and Syria, uh, and I've heard that uh, the new administration or the Biden administration really has shifted the focus in terms of care for the persecuted away from Christians and more towards, uh, should we say, more popular minorities, LGBTQs, etc. And there's a, there's a real sense that uh, persecuted Christians are, are, are off the radar in some sense now with the administration. Would that be too extreme? Oh, it'd be. I I would look at it more as their priority is the LGBT community. Uh, that's their uh, constituency, uh, more their political constituency. Uh, the religious community is more of a Republican conservative constituency, and so I I think they're just shifting uh, to reflect more of their base political constituency. They still support religious freedom, not to the degree. Republicans would. They're, I think it's just kind of a, a bit of a reflection of just the political realities of the the political base for each of the parties. Republicans support LGBT rights, but it's not a core constituency. And we would look at religious freedom as this, as I mentioned earlier, just this foundational human right cornerstone. And the Democrats look at it as one of many human rights and no more, no less important than any others. I, my problem with their view on that is that's the tack the world has taken the last 30 years. And we've seen a decline in religious freedom and a decline in human rights writ large. I, I think we've tried their tactic on this and it doesn't work. And that's why we really should back up and, and see the the uniqueness and the the and, and use really religious freedom to relaunch the human rights project writ large around the world because we've been in decline for human rights for 20 to 30 years now. I'm interested in hearing your reactions to recent reports coming out of the Department of State. In your last position as ambassador at large, you were in the Department of State. And there have been, you know, every year we find these yearly reports on on international religious freedom. And there's concern that certain countries, some of the greatest offenders or most horrific instances of persecution, even even non-state actors that are persecuting religious minorities, but the state is allowing them to do so, aren't being held accountable. They're being kind of no longer labeled countries of concern, or there's less of an eye on their their atrocities. What do you see? Are you concerned about the change in, in tone? Or do you think that this may be just an issue of not having up-to-date information? I'm, I'm concerned particularly on the issue of Nigeria, because we listed them as a country of particular concern. They are it's a democracy that's listed as a country of particular concern, which we didn't have any others on there, but that's because the government has been really feckless and has not stood up for religious freedom, particularly for Christians and Christians in the North and the Middle Belt in Nigeria have, have suffered in a lot of 
killings. But to me, this one's a, uh, a victory of the bureaucracy. The, the bureaucracy in dealing with Nigeria, and that by that I mean State Department, NSC bureaucracy, they don't want this to be seen as having any connection to religion whatsoever. And that somehow if it does seem as connected with religious religion somewhat, it'll become a religious war. Now, my view is you never solve a problem ignoring it. And the first step in solving a problem is to accurately identify it. And religion is clearly some aspect of what's going on in Nigeria. It may not be everything, but it's certainly something. And that that's a key part of, of help, helping move this forward. But the bureaucracy just disagrees with that approach. You know, it's interesting that you say that because I remember, I guess it was back in 2016, the Frank Wolf amendments to the International Religious Freedom Act really did push the Department of State to include in its understanding of foreign policy religion. And that that was a, a big change. Huge to be change. One of those, we just don't talk about that. We manage everything else related to diplomacy and matters like that, but we're not going to talk about religion. It's not, it's like something you don't talk about at the Thanksgiving table. But those amendments specifically asked our foreign service officers to become religious aware of the significance of religion in the countries that they were working in. Are we really implementing that um, change, or do you think that there's just such attrition or opposition to it that's it, kind of it, stopping it? Yeah, it, it's happening some, but it's slow. There's internal resistance to it. Uh, and then the frank fact of the matter is, is that there are just a lot of people in the foreign policy apparatus that have no knowledge of religion, and they don't know anybody close who has a deep personal commitment to religion. So it's just kind of one of these theoretical intellectual activities. When, when faith is a matter that enters your heart, it drives you from inside, not from the head. Now, it first enters the head and before it gets to the heart, but I, they just don't get it. And so then you try to deal with a world that's driven by religion, by and large, because 80% of the world moves by what they believe, their religious beliefs. And you try to manage a world that you're ignoring one of the biggest things that's impacting the world. And I, I just think it's, it's such a blind spot in our foreign policy apparatus in the West, I want to say in general. It's not just the United States. I see this even more significantly in the European foreign policy apparatuses. They just, they've discounted religion years ago as kind of a bygone era uh, thing. And you step outside of Europe or the United States and religion is the driving factor in most places. As you say, Ambassador, I, I remember hearing your friend and my friend, Ambassador Andrew Bennett, the, the one and only Canadian ambassador for religious freedom, saying, I remember him saying precisely that, that he, he, used, to be, he used to prepare diplomats, uh, highly educated men and women, but who had this sort of missing link. Uh, and he used to say to them, you're going to go to the world where the rest of the world really believes that religion is important, but you don't know anything about religion. And this is actually good policy. But there, there's this, and it, you're, you're so right, that's the West. The West has written off religion as a sort of a, a hobby, like stamp collecting, um, whereas it's going to be central for, for, for the work of anyone in the diplomatic service or, or foreign service. 
try try dealing with the Middle East and and deem this religion as this theoretical or intellectual uh, activity of the past. I mean, you are going to get lost and you're going to be ineffective. And when we finally went in and did the Abrahamic Accords, which, well, I wonder where they got that name Abraham. Uh, you know, I, well, why would they call it that? Uh, and you, and you, tight and you tune into religion you can do great diplomacy that it, it it is a key piece i i found i really did well in building up relations in the muslim world and you're thinking how does a guy that's a committed follower of jesus uh and doing daily mass when i can do handle dealing with muslims and the fact of the matter is we understand each other better because I understand they have a heart for God and I do too. And when you can, when you can tie into that basis, the things can really blossom. Well, and that's a really important point that you make. Um, our current ambassador at large for international religious freedom is the first Muslim to ever hold the position. And I think you make the point that if, if religion is important to you in your personal life, you can advocate for the right to religious freedom for others, regardless of their faith tradition. And I wonder if, what are your thoughts on the ability to maybe connect with some of those Muslim leaders now? Do Do you feel like You've obviously you made a personal connection with a lot of these leaders um, in other countries that were from different faith traditions. Have you seen our current ambassador making those continuing to carry on that baton in maintaining those relationships? And, and is he able to even go deeper within the Muslim community? We were together last week in Saudi Arabia in a historic event where the World Muslim League hosted in Saudi Arabia the, the site of the two most holy sites for Islam, a, um, a religious respect conference of talking about shared values of various religion. And you even saw on camera, the head of the World Muslim League walk in the head of the uh, Orthodox Patriarch Bartholomew, head of the Greek Orthodox Church, into a meeting in Saudi Arabia, cross around Patriarch Bartholomew's uh, chest. That has never happened before not in Saudi Arabia. And Ambassador Hussein was there, Rashad Hussein was there. We were there together to witness this historic event. And my hope is that is he can have a special relationship with a number of these Muslim countries and say, look guys, you've got to open up to respecting other religions. You can't just kill them if they don't agree with you. Uh, this isn't gonna work and it's your obligation to do it. And um, And there were Muslim theologians there too discussing that very thing which my hope is prayer is is that this was a historic breakthrough and we'll stop seeing all this theologically pushed uh, at a lower level theologically murder of other religions particularly christians by radical muslims and and said they're say they're doing it in the name of god ambassador what suggestions would you have for our listeners who are Please, God, uh, most people are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ or believers in God. What suggestions would you have for our listeners on how very practically they can support those who are persecuted for for their faith, but especially, obviously, persecuted Christians? Well, you obviously always start with prayer. 
God will lead your heart then. Uh, the second then is tie into some organizations that are doing work in this field. Uh, Knights of Columbus has been a very effective group, uh, particularly in northern Iraq with uh, Iraqi Christians uh, now working in Ukraine with a number of Orthodox people. I think they're working through the Catholic Church. Open Doors is a group that I'm a senior fellow with, and they do fabulous work of helping people stay in country that are persecuted for their faith, which typically we in the West just say, you know, why don't you just leave, come to the West. And But the answer really, that isn't the answer. The right answer is to people should be able to practice their own faith in that country. And then I hope people push on the Muslim world uh, to say, you know, You've been living on oil for a long time, and that gravy train may be ending, or at least being reduced. Not right now. You're getting wealthy right now. But in the near term, the electric vehicles and the like are going to catch on. If you're going to be an open country that's going to grow in today's society and, and global economy, you've got to welcome people of other faiths. You can't kill everybody that doesn't agree with you. And I I hope we really start pushing the Muslim world effectively more to open up for religious freedom for everybody. Ambassador, before we let you go, I have one quick question. What advice will you give to an American Catholic who thinks that's not my problem? What's going on to even Catholics or other Christians abroad that are facing persecution? Um, If you... There's there's a movement sometimes uh, to think we're just going to focus on ourselves. What are the dangers to that, both to our sense as Americans and um, as believers to take you that know, kind what, of position? What I found is that as I advocated for other faiths, my stature grew and my effectiveness grew in the field. When I was advocating for mostly Muslim Uyghurs, it was like, oh, wait a minute, that's not your religious group. Uh, and it was like my words rang truer because I wasn't just advocating for one of my own. And my belief is that will make it better for Catholics in China. Now, Lord knows it's not getting better right now, uh, but that by doing that and by us standing up for each other, we'll be far more effective. I uh, uh, I, I've seen this in practice. It's it's like people can respond to you and just say, oh, you're just doing that because they're Christians. When I'm standing up for Muslims or Hindus or Falun Gong, they can't say that. But I, they can, they will more listen to your words that religious freedom is for everybody everywhere all the time. It is a God-given right. God gave this right to us. No government has the right to thwart it. And I think as we stand on that strong position, it's pretty hard to assail that position. Many thanks to Ambassador Sam Brownback for joining Father Ben and me for this important conversation. Um, for more information on an upcoming International Religious Freedom Summit that will be held this June in Washington, D.C., check out irfsummit.org. Ambassador Brownback has been leading the charge in bringing together different faith leaders and different representatives from across the globe. This is an important issue that should be at the center of our prayers and our advocacy. And it's always been uh, incredible to speak with you. Thank you so much, Ambassador, for taking the time to share your knowledge and your inspiration with all of us. 
Thank you, Andrea and Father Ben. Uh, best to you on celebrating Mass today. Joining me now is Rebecca Shaw, Principal Investigator for the Religion and Economic Empowerment Project. She's also a senior fellow at the Archbridge Institute, a Washington, D.C.-based think tank that conducts research into barriers to social mobility. Rebecca, who lives in Bangalore, India, is a pioneer scholar on the impact of religion on the lives of women in the global south and a leading voice for international religious freedom. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you, Andrea. Now, Rebecca, you and your family have made a pretty big decision to live in India. Tell us about your experiences so far. Well, uh, I actually was born and raised in India, so it's a return after 30 years. I was educated in the West, in Britain, and then married an Indian American and moved to Washington, D.C. for over two decades, and we decided to return to India for many reasons. One in particular was to work actively to support the church, to support the work of religion and religious freedom, but also to be engaged in the life here in India of of people of all religious traditions and to share the gifts, many gifts that the Lord has given us after many years to share it with people here in India and in the region, actually, we are actively engaged. My husband and I are actively engaged in not just in India, but which is in South Asia, but in South and Southeast Asia. Now, Rebecca, um, I just want to mention for our listeners that your husband, Tim, is a, is a research scholar at the University of Dallas as well and has been, you know, just noted for his work and his beautiful voice in advancing religious freedom as well. I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about the significance of the church, the Catholic church in particular, and institutions that are run or sponsored by the church in responding to the needs of the vulnerable around you. And how is that in helping kind of promote the notion of international religious freedom in the region, given these institutions and their contribution? Well, uh, that's a very good question, and thank you for that, Andrea. And I speak to you as we have we emerge from one of the the most difficult shocks to the world, but in particular to the poor and vulnerable communities here in India. And I speak of the COVID nineteen pandemic. So let me situate, if I if I may my remarks about the church and the wonderful role of the church and the faithful in the lives of the vulnerable as they have navigated the pandemic and as we face the aftermath of the pandemic. And I will start with a story, if I may. So my work involves interviews, in-person interviews, which I missed during the pandemic, but I did actually conduct them, as well as focus groups with numerous individuals, particularly women from the Dalit or the scheduled caste or what were formerly known as outcast communities in India. And my work, the goal of my work is to ascertain, clarify, if you will, and quantify the impact of religion, religious faith, and by that I mean Hinduism, Islam, Jainism, 
Protestant Christianity, as well as the role of the Catholic faith in the lives of the poor. And when I say the impact, I mean the on the ground impact. How does religion, how does faith have an impact on the health, the economic lives, the social life, the spiritual life of people? So the COVID-19 pandemic shook the world, but it particularly upended lives for the very, very poor right outside my window. And we live situated here in an urban poor community, a shanty town, a barrio, you may say, uh, a slum uh, in, in, in North Bangalore. And the pandemic destroyed the lives of many people in part because they were daily wage laborers. And with the national lockdown, when the country completely shut down, people had absolutely no money because they earn money every day. They had no money to eat. They were fearful for their health. Their children were kept at home. So their dreams of their children being educated and lifting them out of poverty were immediately quashed. There was just despair. And at that time, there were the, you saw the beauty, and I should say the mercy and the beauty of the church. And I speak here now of the church of which I am a part, the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church sprung into action. It is so amazing that the church is like a tree with roots deep into the community. There were institutions that we are, we, we're remarkably in India as in the rest of the world, but I speak here of India and of my city, Bangalore. The Catholic Church has tremendous institutions. So Caritas was, of course, lauded by the government, did a tremendous job. There were churches, there were uh, nonprofit organizations that got out, started providing food, providing rations, we called them, of rice and lentils to the people who, who really had no food to eat because the money they earn every day was the money that they used for their, uh, to feed their families. And another thing that the church did was the church and the Catholic institutions had hospitals. We have tremendous expertise in medical care. So the hospitals played a, a remarkable role during COVID ambulances collected the sick there were there was um uh, just and in the post during as we were coming out of covid and vaccinations came into the into the into the area setting up uh organizations and setting up people to go into the areas and encourage people to get vaccinated so the there was an active role for the church the church because of her roots and her commitment and her presence deep in the community provided the economic, the social, and the most important, the spiritual support. One of the women I visited at the height of the pandemic because I was doing some research said, we didn't know what to do. We were terrified. There was this thing called coronavirus. We didn't even, couldn't even say it. So all we did is we called the 
priest and the priest said, just pray. So what was I to do? I gathered the other women around me in the slums and we all sat. And of course, you know how slums are, how shanty towns are. People live one on top of another. Social distancing doesn't really happen there. So we, we all gathered outside our slums and grabbed our rosaries and said the rosary. And they did that every single day. So that gave us the strength and the solace to ride out this pandemic. I mean, the pandemic is we're into the fourth wave maybe, but that is what the power of, the, of faith does. And that is how the church and how people have harnessed and utilized their faith to cope with what I think is one of the, was one of the hardest things for people to deal with, particularly in the last 24 months. Rebecca, it's it's incredibly inspiring, and I think um, for American listeners, understanding really the desperation that the pandemic wrought, uh, especially in the developing world, is is hard. It's hard for us to wrap our heads around, right? We were we were struggling with trying to get appointments on delivery grocery services. We weren't facing not having any resources at all to be able to buy basics for our family. So it's it's a really beautiful reminder of um, how fortunate we are and how resilient people, um, especially in the developing world, were and continue to be. Um, I wanted to get your impressions on a wonderful celebration that just happened um, in the middle of May. On May 15th, uh, the church canonized a number of people, but among them was a wonderful Indian-born um, martyr, Devashayam Lazarus, St. Lazarus Devashayam. Could you share how significant his canonization was for believers in India and for India in general? Well, his, his canonization was immensely significant. And here's why, Andrea. So Dave, uh, Neil Kanda, was, he was born Neil Kanda Pillai. Neil Kanda Pillai was a convert in the 17th century from a relatively higher caste. And we don't have time in this radio program, but your listeners will probably understand the whole idea of caste in India. He came from a relatively high caste and he was, he converted. He was a prime minister of this king and he was persecuted. And there's, there's not much is known about him, but stories say he was persecuted for many reasons. One of the reasons he was persecuted, his transformation, his faith transformed the way he perceived lower castes and he wanted to bring the caste together with which others didn't like, and he was therefore killed. We don't know the real story, but the issue here is his, his, his conversion was dramatic and real. And the, the, the way it, it, the implications, shall I say, of his canonization for the faithful here in India are many, but I'll highlight one. And that is, he became a Christian voluntarily. He was drawn to the beauty and the love and the mercy of Christ. He saw in Christ someone who he wanted to follow. Nobody forced him. Nobody beat him. He was not forced. Many times people believe that those that, that conversion takes place because of inducement or abuse. Or someone is, is incentivized to convert. No, he was drawn to the beauty 
which so many of us have experienced of Christ. So he came voluntarily. And many of the women who I study across this country and in Sri Lanka are drawn to the beauty of Christ and they see who he is and they come to him. Many of them are drawn to the beauty of Christ through the hand of his mother. And, uh, and this is something very much as Catholics, we, 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 we must understand that the mother of Christ takes people. And many of the women I know who come to the faith come initially to his mother and they cry to his mother and say, as a mother, you will understand we are mothers and our children are hurting, help us. And she takes them to the son. And there is a miracle of healing, just like there was a miracle in that very first miracle when she took the people who wanted wine at the wedding to her son. So the miracles uh, continue and the mother draws him, but this was voluntarily. So he was persecuted, he was martyred. And that has taken place for centuries in India, but the church has flourished and it grows. And the lesson we take as Indians is even though we face persecution, even though we may face martyrdom, even though we may face tremendous constraints, restrictions, the church will grow because that is the beauty of the faith. And we must take courage in the example of Deva Sagayam. We must take courage in his example that even as his blood spilled in that land or in that part of South India, that part of South India is vibrant with the faith because the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And that is our lesson. We must take courage. And that is, tr- that is such a, it's such a, it's so uplifting for us as in India and uh, in South Asia that his example of, of even of death is an example really of victory because the church has grown. Absolutely, Rebecca. And, and just listening to both you recounting his story in your own passionate voice, I think is an inspiration to all of us. I really want to thank you for taking the time um, to speak with us here on Religious Freedom Matters, to share your commitment, not only to your faith, but to living that faith with joy, with serenity, with conviction, and with a spirit of outward concern for those around you, for the vulnerable, and for those who are seeking for that loving care. Um, I, 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 can, I imagine that I can speak over all of our listeners that you truly are wearing the face of Christ. And um, again, I thank you so much for joining us. This wraps up our season of Religious Freedom Matters. You can find all of our episodes at the National Catholic Register website, ncregister.com, and the website of the Conscience Project at conscience-project.org. You can also find them on all of your favorite podcast hosting platforms. I'm Andrea Pachati bayer director of the Conscience Project. On behalf of my co-host this season, Joan Desmond, from the Register and Father Benedict Keeley, thank you for joining us and for agreeing that religious freedom matters. Thank you.